0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan.
0: And me, Tegan Taylor. Now, later on this podcast, we'll have some bonus content for you. Of course, first up is our regular question and answer segment, which, by the way, you can email questions to us, healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: And secondly, we'll have some audio from the health report exactly a year ago where we were talking about this respiratory infection which was running wild, how things have changed. Also today...
0: I'll be talking to a researcher about a potentially beneficial link between saunas and dementia.
1: Very tangible benefits from bowel cancer screening, the curious story of mothers spreading cancer to their babies, is it real, and the importance of getting on top of depression in young people. A huge Swedish study of nearly 1.5 million children, followed from the age of 5 to 19, and then for many through to the age of 31, has found significant links to physical diseases as well as dying prematurely. Marika Leone was the lead author. Marika is a psychiatric epidemiologist at the Institut Karolinska in Stockholm. Welcome to the Health Report.
2: Yes, hi. Thank you. Can you hear me?
1: We can, loud and clear, as if you're in the next room. It's just simply wonderful. Marika, how did you do the study?
2: Yes, so um, we were able to look at the entire Swedish population. As you said, it was a very big study, uh, 1.5 million individuals so um thank you to yeah being witness is amazing for this reason if you are a researcher in epidemiology especially they have uh very big data sets so um we can look up uh, a lot of things that happen during the life of individuals and that's what we did so uh, we wanted to screen around like uh, so th- in their lifetime, what happened after they got this diagnosis of depression. And we wanted to compare these patients with depression, with patients who did not have depression during this young age. So five to 19, as you previously mentioned. And then, yeah, uh, we wanted to check the risk of developing a lot of. Uh, uh different physical health problems which has never done before uh, to such extent
1: let's just start then how, how what proportion of these children developed uh depression in the first 19 years of their life
2: uh it was around 35 uh 37, individuals actually um so, so that, about two and a half
1: percent or something like that
2: cor- yeah correct correct
1: were you expecting more or less or that was just you just took what you got
2: well, actually, we were expecting pretty much the same. Other people have checked these registers before, and so the prevalence was around two, two point five. So that's what we were expecting. Uh, but of course, uh, it is important to say that these most likely are the very, um, you know, the most severe cases. So the one that get attention uh, to clinics, to doctors. So the proportion might be higher. We we're looking at the most severe cases.
1: And that would include bipolar disorder as they got into adolescence?
2: Uh, yeah, we, um, we looked specifically at depression and then in some analysis, we, uh, so the term is adjusting for uh, or controlling uh, for, for bipolar. So just to make sure that we could get you know an indication of what was happening for depression only, Uh, when we take into consideration bipolar, schizophrenia and other other disorders.
1: So you looked at 69 physical diseases as well as dying prematurely. What did you find? Mm
2: Well, the risk was increased for basically all of them apart, maybe for two. So 67, 68, like all of them were were like um, significantly, um, so these kids get higher risk for most of them. Uh, Specifically, uh, intentional self-harm was quite high. So around 14 times higher risk uh, when you compare these kids with the one that have not been diagnosed with depression. Uh, eight-time increase of sleep disorders, uh, six-fold increased risk of viral hepatitis and, and other things. And uh, in terms of mortality, there was a, a six-time uh, increased risk uh, for dying for any cause. And then when we look at specific cause, uh, of course, like as, again, like Intentional harm was the leading cause, around 14 times increased risk
1: of suicide. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the things don't necessarily make sense. So sleep disorders, you can understand. Liver disease, is that related to alcohol? But you mentioned hepatitis and you also mentioned and you also found that infections were higher. What do you think is going on there? It's hard to sometimes. Well, yeah. Alcohol you, alcoholic liver disease, you might find there, but hepatitis. What was your hypothesis there that explained that? If indeed it was cause well, that- and effect.
2: Yeah, yeah, okay, those are very good questions. So yeah, first of all, we, uh, with our study, we couldn't address causality. So I think this is a very important message that we're trying to uh, put forward because we're looking at the associations. It doesn't mean that depression is actually causing uh, all of these uh, outcomes, so these medical, physical problems. Uh, So there there needs other studies, I mean, there is a need for other, you know, uh, research to be carried out to determine that. But, in general, yeah, the viral hepatitis, I guess um, the hypothesis that there was that it was cre- like maybe linked somehow with substance use disorders, and in fact, when we took that into account, uh, this association decreased quite a lot, so maybe it might be something related with substance use disorders, so drugs specifically, I guess, and that's an hypothesis yeah
1: now your your register would have also found treatment. In other words, they came in contact with services, they got treated. Did treatment reduce the risk or the association with some of these diseases or and some of these impacts, such as self-harm?
2: Um, well, unfortunately, we didn't look at uh, at these things. Like uh, th- there are opportunities to look at uh, treatments and you know drug use like, in terms of uh, prescription medicines and things like that, but we didn't uh, look at that in this study, unfortunately. But it's definitely a very important question to address.
1: Were there other factors in these children which you measured which had an impact? In other words, um, is this just purely an effect of depression? Or were there other things that mitigated it, that reduced the effect, or increased it?
2: Uh, well, again, yeah, I think the only thing that we looked in this study it was psychiatry um, problems that co-, co occurred in this population. Uh, so again, uh, the risk decreased when we when we took into consideration other psychiatric uh, problems. But it's also important to to bear in mind that this. Uh, you know, uh, patients with depression usually are also, you know, at increased risk. And so they are diagnosed with all of other like a lot of other uh, disorders. So even though when you take away the fact of these disorders, there is this uh, risk. I mean, most likely the the real scenario is that most of these patients, they have other Psychiatric disorders.
1: So whether or not it's cause and effect, they coexist. What's the just before we finish? What are what are the messages for the healthcare system, for primary care doctors, and others, and families even?
2: Yeah, well, I think that the main message that we wanted to bring uh, is that I mean, we wanted to bring awareness in general. So for clinicians, it's important to be aware that these patients are a higher increase. Uh, I mean, they are they are in, um, at increased risk of. Uh, a lot of other, you know, uh, physical problems, and it would be good for them to monitor them, ideally also to comprehensively manage both psychiatric and physical problems. And for patients as well, again, to be aware of their risk, maybe be vigilant because like, you know, to watch out for, for other health problems, because we know that for both psychiatric and physical problems, uh, early diagnosis, early intervention, early treatment can make a big difference, so lead to better outcomes. But I think it's also important that this patient, you know, they keep in mind that this is informative, it's not deterministic. So it doesn't mean that they are going to develop these problems. And with that knowledge, yeah, they can just yeah. like pay, not, yeah, pay attention not, to the it, lifestyle.
1: It's not inevitable. Marika, thank you very much for Absolutely. joining us.
2: No problem. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Marika Leone is a psychiatric epidemiologist at the Institute at Karolinska in Stockholm. And this is RM's Health Report. I'm Norman Swan. Bowel cancer is the second commonest malignancy in men and women, excluding melanoma skin in non-melanoma skin cancer. It affects one in eleven men and one in sixteen women by the age of eighty-five, and it's also the second highest cause of cancer deaths. Yet it's preventable. And we have a national bowel cancer screening program which involves two yearly screening of people aged between fifty and seventy-four. But saving lives is only one part of the story. A study has looked at the outcomes of bowel surgery in people who have what's called screen-detected bowel cancer, bowel cancer that's detected by the screening programme. Susanna Ahern is head, head of Registry Science at Monash University and Phil Smart is a colorectal surgeon and Deputy Director of the Gastrointestinal Clinical Institute at the Epworth in Melbourne. Welcome to you both.
3: Thank you, Norman. Thank you.
1: Susanna, just uh, before we get to the actual study, what, what, what do we know about the reduction in deaths for people who participate in bowel cancer screening?
3: Um, Norman, we know that it does reduce um, the deaths related to colorectal cancer, and some studies have shown a mortality advantage of about fifteen percent after correcting for lead time bias. Um, and that lead time would bias is
1: meaning that you've got cancer before the study started.
3: That's right. So, um, so, it, and it could increase more if there was a greater participation in um, the bowel cancer screening project as well.
1: We'll come back to participation later because it's pretty pathetic in Australia. What what did you do, before I get to Phil, what did you do in this study? What was the purpose of it?
3: So with this study, we were interested to see if we could find out more about outcomes for people who were screened um, using the surgical data in a particular surgical database that Phil and I work on called the Binational Colorectal Cancer Audit. And um, There hasn't been a study in before in Australia that has reviewed outcomes from surgery in people who participated in the National Screening Programme.
1: Phil, just give us a sense of what the surgical options are, and what we, because the process is. And just to clarify if I'm wrong here. You you get a positive uh, FOBT, so that's your the blood and your poo test, and then you're referred for a colonoscopy. Then they find something at colonoscopy. What happens after that? Because there are various options here.
4: There are various options. That's correct, um, Norman. I mean, I would just preface it by saying that you know, I think. For us as clinicians, there the is a very large difference in the magnitude of the problem when we face a patient who comes into the emergency department with, you know, an obstruction or a blockage of their bowel. They're very unwell and sick. They have a, a, a swollen belly, and we're faced with the idea that we have to operate on these unwell pe- people as an emergency um, and try and uh, fix the problem. And you can contrast that with people who walk into the office with a fecal of blood test. They're often they're, they're uh, usually asymptomatic and then we go ahead and do the colonoscopy and we, we which makes intuitive sense, we find problems that are easier to deal with and in general terms, the um, approach to bowel cancer in the majority of patients is surgical. So we look at doing an elective operation and increasingly in, in the majority of those cases would be done as keyhole or laparoscopic surgery um, in an elective setting in a well. Patient with a short length of stay, and the aim is to cure the um, cancer. And the majority of uh, patients are in that position,
1: and 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 some are just treated with col. By you just snare the polyp with the, colon, with the colonoscope, but that's yeah, that's, that's the pre-cancerous important. lesion.
4: That's correct. And, and you know, if you look at screening programs in general, it is rare in medicine that you can screen well people and prevent a problem in the future. And bowel cancer really ticks. A lot of those boxes, and as as you know, know, if you're going to screen a population for a disease, it has to be a common disease. It has to have a preclinical phase where you can intervene in a cost-effective way and the treatment has to be effective. And bowel cancer tick all those boxes and the the area that we're targeting uh, in bowel cancer is this concept of polyps. And polyps are generally accumulating the genetic defects that a bowel cancer cell requires to become invasive in the spread. And it's sort of, you know, I explained it as, as they're about halfway along that journey. If we see polyps with a colonoscope and remove them, um, then the risk of bowel cancer goes from about one in 12 to not zero, euro, but, but much, much lower. So, so It's a very attractive proposition to treat that, that, that problem.
1: So Susanna, w- what did you find in the study? Because these are people who obviously had cancer when the surgeon or the gastroenterologist did the colon- colonoscopy. Mm-hmm.
3: That's right. Thanks, Norman. So we, we reviewed the outcomes of over 11,000 people who had surgery for bowel cancer in Australia over about a 12-year period. So we compared these surgical outcomes for those who were diagnosed via the bowel cancer screening program versus those that were not. And we found that those who were diagnosed via the bowel cancer screening program were significantly less likely to have post-operative surgical and medical complications and a shorter stay in hospital by about one and a half days. Um, but we also found the characteristics, as, as Phil said, of people who were screened were different to those who were not so they were more likely to be younger have fewer pre-existing conditions have elective surgery and presented an earlier stage so we did adjust for a number of these factors in our analysis to see if there was still a difference in outcomes between the groups and there was
1: so phil this is just this is stage of diagnosis you're picking it up earlier and as you said it's a, it's much more benign surgery and presumably for all of them they don't need chemotherapy
4: yeah, I mean, I think the, the, as a general rule, and that fits with our the the you know the frontline clinical work that we do. That, that in and it's, it is important to distinguish between polyps and cancer. So the the bowel cancer screening test is is very good for picking up cancer, and it does pick up cancers in patients without symptoms, and 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 usually they are earlier cancers. Uh, it does pick up um, uh, some of the bigger polyps. It doesn't pick up every polyp. But the screening test is mainly aimed at picking up cancer earlier. And and we see, again, this this disease biology in bowel cancer is very attractive to this method because it, it generally progresses in sequences. And the, the bigger the tumor, the longer you leave it, the more likely it's spread to the lymph gland. And that's a very strong negative predictor of survival in patients with bowel cancer. So so we, we really, you know, the best case scenario for us in, you know, in a very common disease is to have uh, polyps removed endoscopically, or early cancers identified and removed at a node-negative stage, so an early stage, and we look, you know, stage one and two cancers, and that that's you know that bolsters the argument for screening. When we when we go to our patients and say, hey, you have to do something that's not particularly palatable, you have to give us a sample of your stool and send it off in the mail and things like that, you know, there really is compelling um, health reasons to do that, and and you know, foul screening does have a. An image problem, I think. Um, We don't have the Movember moustache and all of the the um, the the publicity around it. But I think, you know, particularly at a primary care level, whatever we can do to improve that screening rate is going to have a you know, very significant difference in bowel cancer mortality.
1: Thank you very much to you both, to Susanna Heron, who's Head of the Registry of Science at Monash University in Melbourne, and Phil Smart, who's Deputy Director of the Gastrointestinal Clinical Institute at the Epworth in Melbourne. So, Australia, you've got a job to do. Sit down and do it. We have pathetic uh, bowel cancer rates. you really want to die rather than just do one of these tests or have major surgery, go and get it done. Of all the things Scandinavian countries are best known for, sauna bathing would have to be in the top five, along with reindeer and flat pack furniture stores. off of stereotypes. But along with being a relaxing activity, there's evidence that saunas could protect against dementia, even in people with risk factors like smoking, low levels of exercise and high blood pressure. Jegan, it's a curious link.
0: It sure is. But we've got a guest here tonight who's going to help us unpack it. We've got Mia Kivipelto, a professor of clinical geriatric epidemiology, also from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Mia, thank you so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Mia, you weren't directly involved in this study, but what did the researchers look at?
5: Yes, this is a recent study from Finland uh, showing that frequent uh, sauna was indeed uh, associated with the lower risk of dementia. Uh, Those persons who uh, took sauna 9 to 12 times per month compared to those who had sauna only less than four times per month, had 50% lower risk of dementia during 20 years of follow-up. And this risk reduction was still there after 40 years when the risk reduction was 20%. So it's quite significant uh, finding, uh, I would
0: say. So really interesting. So it's not just taking part in sauna bathing, but there's also a sweet spot in terms of the number of times, the length of time, and even the temperature, isn't it? Correct. And indeed, this was frequent sauna. That
5: means I mentioned nine to 12 times per month. So it is basically something like three times per week. So it is quite frequent. And this heat exposure is one mechanism that has been suggested that has benefits for the health. It's not only this relaxation and Uh, mental well-being but there may be also some direct medical benefits of course we need to be a bit careful with these kind of studies, it's an epidemiological study and there may be many confounding factors, people who take frequent sauna may be healthier in general, maybe more physical activity, more social contacts which are also associated with reduced risk of dementia however the authors here uh, try to um, take into account all these confounding factors and the association still there.
0: And the participants in the study had relatively high levels of smoking, they had low levels of exercise, they had high blood pressure on the whole, which are all risk factors. So what what could be happening inside the brain or the body so that this heat is reducing the risk of dementia? Is What's the biological mechanism that might be happening there?
5: There are many possibilities. First is I would say uh, general uh, health benefit for the cardiovascular system. There have been a uh, previous study showing that sauna is associated with the reduced risk of cardiovascular um, risk factors and cardiovascular outcomes, lower blood pressure. It may improve the blood flow, the endothelial function in the blood vessels. So the blood vessels and the blood flow is one important mechanism. We know that that has also important effect on the brain, both in Alzheimer's disease and in vascular dementia. The second one is inflammation. There have been some studies showing that sauna may reduce the inflammatory mechanisms, which have been associated with Alzheimer's disease early during the disease process. Uh, then there are, of course, the whole relaxation, psychosocial factors. Why people want to take sauna is often because they feel that it's relaxing, uh, it's uh, a good medication against stress, people may sleep better. And we know that all these uh, psychosocial factors are also very important for the brain health. So, probably it's a kind of combination, multifactorial uh, uh, kind of uh, reasons behind this association.
0: So our audience is mostly in Australia, which the the vast majority of it is pretty hot for a lot of the year. Not like uh, Finland, which where this study was done. What should Australians be taking from this? Uh, Should we be going outside more, taking hot baths, or is sauna specifically the prescription after this study?
5: Yeah, this is a very good question because this is
0: a study from Finland where basically
5: all people are having sauna and sauna is kind of part of the culture. We also have quite cold climate, so maybe we need some more heat exposure and as you said, Australia is a bit different setting. But I think this kind of reminds us that that, that there may be new ways to protect the brain. The recent study showed that 40% of dementia is related to modifiable risk factors and really Really, the psychosocial factors are important, finding also some relaxation, taking care of the vascular factors. I'm leading the worldwide fingers which is a um, a huge effort globally, trying really to conduct randomized control trials and show what are the best ways to protect against strain. In Australia, there were at least two big studies ongoing. So I hope that in the close future, we will have even more answers to these very important questions.
0: Really important and so fascinating. Mia, thank you so much, for joining us on The Health Report. Thank you.
1: So I want to know, Tegan, whether rushing out into the snow and you know with the shock of that, or chucking into a cold pool, really makes a difference. But I don't think Mia had that, um, had, that had those findings.
0: I'll let you do the first person research on that, Norman. That yeah, sounds horrible.
1: Not me. Mia Kipapelko is, uh, is Pelto, I should say, is professor of clinical geriatric epidemiology in the Department of Neurobiology, Care Sciences and Society at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. This is the Health Report here on RN. The New England Journal of Medicine has a potentially disturbing report from Japan of two little boys, one age two, the other age six, diagnosed with lung cancer, they're not related, whose mothers had cervical cancer. Genome sequencing found that the tumors in the kids, although they seemed very different from the mothers, were genetically related to their mom's tumor. The assumption was that cancer cells had spread to the boys as in the physical process of being born. Dr. Alison Brand is Director of Gynecological Oncology at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. Welcome to The Health Report, Alison.
6: Thanks for having me.
1: So have, have you ever heard of this before?
6: Um, no, I had not heard of this uh, before this, and I have to say it's virtually unheard of. of the New England Journal of Medicine, which is the peak um, journal in in medicine, to publish a case report. So you know that if they've published this case report, they've really examined the data very closely to verify that it's true. Um, and uh, I think we have to um, we have to believe some of it um, uh, because it's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine.
1: Let me just. Divert from the core story here, which is about, you know, cervical cancer, moving to the kids and getting to their lungs. What's this? You're a surgeon. I mean, you're a gynaecological surgeon, do a lot of surgery. What's the story with gynaecological seeding and surgery? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about that, whether in fact you can spread cancer with surgery itself.
6: Yeah. Look, the old uh, wives' tale was that you know once you open up a belly, then and let the air in, then the cancer just spreads uh, terribly. And of course, we know that's not true. And that really came from the fact that when patients had operations many years ago, they found cancer, but then they couldn't do much about it. There was no chemotherapy, or there was no radiotherapy. Um, so really, this whole business of cancer spreading, uh, surgery spreading cancer, is probably um, not true at all. Um, we do know that. Um, Cancer from uh, the mum can sometimes cross the placenta and get into babies, but that's usually hematologic. So it's leukemia leukemia that's right leukemia and other and and basically the babies then have widespread disease because it got into their bloodstream and then went throughout the body this particular uh two case reports are really unusual because the um it doesn't look like it came uh, transplacentally or through the placenta it looks like it came um Adrenaline. as the babies passed through the birth canal and landed in the lung which is the kind of the closest place that um the babies could you know, breathe in some of the cells that were being, um, were were in the uh, vagina um, as they passed through the birth canal.
1: And because of that, you wouldn't think it was human papillomavirus related, which is the cause of cervical cancer, because it was the actual tumour itself that got transmitted.
6: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Although, you know, um, we haven't often thought that cancer is catching you know I mean I think that's the one thing we've said you can't touch someone who has cancer and then catch it and and in many ways you catch lots of viruses and and women can pass their HPV infections in some rare cases to their babies and so this is unusual in that the cancer has really been caught from the mother and that's highly unusual. Um, I guess when we look at this we have to look at as we examine any reports we have to say is this biologically plausible and I guess in rare cases, it is biologically plausible, although you mostly expect that the tumor the tumour cells on the top of tumors are really those ones that are often non-viable. And so mm-hmm. I would say that or not living and therefore can't um, attach to something and grow there. Um, but, you know, I think that the next generation sequencing that they have done here really suggests to us that maybe there is some truth to all of this, albeit rare, rare, rare.
1: Now is it routine to screen for cervical cancer in pregnancy?
6: It is routine that patients should have had a recent um, screen prior to um, uh, their pregnancy and if they haven't to have one done uh, during pregnancy. What you have to remember though, Norman is uh, certainly the first uh, the mother of the first patient had had a normal cervical screen uh, seven months prior to delivering her baby and it's important because she had a very rare, um endocrine tumour, so a very rare type of cervical um, tumour that probably wouldn't have been picked up by screening anyway. Um, but those are very rare tumours, and the vast majority of cervical cancers can be picked up by screening and certainly are much better picked up by the, screen, the new screening test that we have that looks at HPV presence.
1: And before we go, um, just tell us what cuz the screening program has changed Now now happens every yep. 5 years if i remember rightly and yep. it's you're taking checking for hpv so women need to be you know just give us a very brief cuz running out of time outline of the screening program now
6: yeah so it used to be that we looked at the cells on the cervix and to check to see whether or not they had precancerous changes um that had up to a 30% false negative rate, and therefore we had to screen more often to make sure that we didn't miss anything. Now we check by looking at what we call high-risk HPV virus, which is human papilloma virus, which um, is known to cause um, cervical cancer, and we check for that high-risk um, HPV, and because the test is, test is so sensitive, then we only, if there's a negative test, we only need to do the test every five years. Oh, I and I think that... Yeah, and I think the take-home message here for women who have, are pregnant is that we shouldn't worry so much about giving your baby cancer from you. What we should really worry about is making sure that we prevent cancer in the first place by having regular screening and, if eligible, making sure your boys and girls have vaccinations.
1: Alison, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Dr Alison Brand is Director of Gynecological Oncology at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. Well, Tegan, that's uh, an interesting little story there with, about uh, those unfortunate children and the unfortunate mothers. One of the mothers did very badly indeed.
0: Yeah, it's such a fascinating case study.
1: Yep, but get screened. Just like the bowel cancer, get screened.
0: Absolutely.
1: You know, we have very high rates of cervical cancer screening in Australia, so it's pretty good. So listen, we promised at the top in terms of the podcast um, that we would play an item from a year ago, and we're going to answer your questions. Why don't we start, Tegan, with the item from a year ago before you joined the health report. I mean, today there are 100, been 100 million cases of SARS-CoV-2, 2.2 million deaths, 28,000 cases in Australia, 909 deaths in Australia. And a year ago, I did an interview with Professor Ryana McIntyre, who's become a household name, head of global biosecurity at the Kirby Institute, to ask her what she thought of this growing epidemic that we were seeing in January out of Wuhan. And here's part of that interview. As we go to air, there are more than 17,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and more than 350 deaths. The Department of Health's last coronavirus update says there are now 12 confirmed cases here four in New South Wales, four in Victoria, two in South Australia, and two in Queensland. Let's delve now into what we know and don't know about where this novel coronavirus came from and how it's behaving. Professor Raina McIntyre is head of the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. I spoke to her earlier.
7: It's a pleasure, Norman.
1: What, if anything, surprised you most about this epidemic?
7: Well, how quickly the case numbers started to rise. We were all watching, you know, this unknown pneumonia from late December through to about mid-January and it seemed to stay stable at around 40 or 50 cases. And then all of a sudden, around the 18th of January, the cases started to really surge and they've continued to increase every day since.
1: The key here is whether or not it's infectious during the incubation period or before symptoms arrive. And my understanding is the incubation period could be anywhere between two or three days, maybe an average of five through to 12 or 13 days. What is the evidence that it can be transmitted during the incubation period?
7: There was an outbreak in Germany that shows that it was transmitted likely in the incubation period. And quite rapidly in that outbreak, a lady from Wuhan came to Germany to run a workshop. She infected a man who attended that workshop, but she didn't have symptoms at the time. She got sick on the plane flying back to China the guy that she infected then infected somebody else within a day of his being exposed. That could be a game changer. Yes, because if something is transmitted asymptomatically, then it becomes much harder to control.
1: Can it be controlled at all
7: apart from a vaccine? Yes, there are lots of public health measures that can control even an epidemic where there's asymptomatic transmission. First is identifying cases really rapidly, so having good surveillance and then isolating them so they can't infect others. Tracking all their contacts straight away and monitoring the contacts for development of symptoms and if they develop symptoms, isolating them. And then the general infection control measures like hand washing and if you're a healthcare worker, personal protective equipment.
1: So on a scale of 1 to 10, how concerned are you? Seven. Seven. Seven on your scale is pretty high?
7: Pretty high, yeah.
1: And what worries you?
7: Well, the fact that the cases are still increasing, I would only start to relax a little bit when I saw the cases starting to decrease. And it's because case fatality rate is much higher than anything we've seen anytime recently that has the capability of spreading through the community. And that would be a major impact on our health system if it did pan out that way.
1: So we'll watch closely, Raina. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So, Tegan, Rina McIntyre gave it 7 out of 10. And I should really just say that we re-interviewed Raina just two weeks after that. And her level of concern had gone from 7 out of 10 to 9 out of 10. And that's when... I got pretty anxious.
0: Yeah, she obviously had her finger on the pulse as well she should. That's her field. And she was right.
1: Yeah, and she has. And she she's predicted a lot, Ryan has predicted a lot well ahead of time that, that's happened this pandemic. So
0: speaking of the pandemic, Norman, uh, we've got our mailbag with yes. lots of questions for us as usual today. And the first one is a coronavirus question. Uh-huh. Uh, so <laughs> Tim is asking, can you explain what virus shedding is We need your awesome ability to explain things brought to bear on this phrase, Norman. Oh,
1: well, they've got a big ask here. So virus shedding is not exactly what it sounds. So virus shedding, yes, part of it is that you are shedding virus from your nose, your throat, maybe even your lungs when you cough out, maybe even in your poo in the toilet. You shed virus, and that's how you catch coronavirus. You catch it from people who shed it. If you don't shed the virus, you don't catch it. Where the confusion comes in is where you've got what's called viral shedding that's prolonged. So you can shed virus, you know, people on average shed virus for maybe 8, 9, 10 days after diagnosis, but some people can shed virus up to 70 days after diagnosis. Now, the problem is that the PCR test just picks up RNA, the genetic material of the virus. It does not culture a whole virus. You can culture the whole virus to see whether or not you've got the whole virus being shed, but basically the PCR test tests for the RNA in the virus and amplifies that. So what you sometimes have is people who look as if they're shedding virus, but in fact what they're shedding is either dead virus or fragments of the RNA, so they're not infectious. And it's extremely hard for the PCR to pick it up. And it's extremely rare for people to stay infectious beyond about three weeks. So while you can shed virus for six weeks, it's not the virus itself. It's RNA shedding.
0: So, so, so if you could see that virus particle, what does it look like? Is it broken open? Like what? And it couldn't infect someone. So how do they then figure out whether it's shedding or not shedding?
1: Well, they call it shedding because it's coming up positive for the virus. And if they're concerned, they can go and do viral cultures and other things to actually test for the whole virus to see whether it's infectious. But it's really pretty involved. There are other tests that you can do. There, so it's not just the PCR. They do something like the CT, which is your measure of infectivity. And if that's low, paradoxically, your infectivity is high. And what they do is they take two or three other measures on the PCR, which gives them an indication of whether or not this is real infectious virus or it's just fragments. So what you would see if you had this, you know, microscopic eye is not the round, spiky, which is really just the notional shape of the virus. It would be broken off bits of the virus uh, is what you would see there.
0: Well, dear listeners, if you like listening to Norman and I discuss coronavirus (laughs) questions, uh, you can listen to it all the time on a show that we do called Coronacast, which is available on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. But on to some non-coronavirus questions now, Norman. Brian is asking about metformin and how it sort of has lots of positive metabolic effects uh, related to it. It's, It's a treatment for type 2 diabetes, but perhaps it could be a treatment beyond type 2 diabetes. And Brian's asking, is there any risk in taking metformin if you're not diabetic, if you want to obtain its other benefits?
1: And we should say that Brian listens to us from Thunder Bay in Canada.
0: Thunder Bay, that sounds awesome.
1: It's a long way up
0: north. <laughs> it's a long way to Thunder Bay,
1: yep, yeah, so it's pretty cold in Thunder Bay. so Brian, <laughs> thanks for your um thanks for your thanks for your question. We are actually broadcast in Canada for some ungodly hour on a Saturday morning. So metformin, I should just explain a little bit here about metformin. So metformin is being promoted by some people as um, a kind of maternal youth drug. It does reduce diabetes. It seems to reduce the risk of cancer. If you've got cancer, it seems to improve outcomes. It may be related to uh, decreased rates of dementia. And this is not just magical. There are some evidence of it. There's a recent paper suggesting that it actually reduces the risk of age-related macular degeneration. So it's quite a drug, but... There are side effects from it. No drug is free of side effects. The feared side effect of metformin is something called lactic acidosis. We know about anaerobic exercise. You get lactic acid buildup in your muscles. It causes pain and so on. So lactate is a carbohydrate and it accumulates when we have reduced oxygen. So exercise can produce it. Cancer drugs can produce too much lactic acid. Infection can. Diabetes itself can because the carbohydrates and sugar are not being metabolised properly. Cocaine can produce it. And lactic acidosis is extremely dangerous with a high mortality rate. So it has been associated with metformin use. But there are various studies which show zero risk of lactic acidosis with metformin. Or if there is a risk, it's Like, you know, in single figures per 100,000 doses or 100,000 people using metformin. So it's a very, very low risk. It's very, very rare. The commonest side effects are things like, you know, tummy side effects like bloating, tummy pain, constipation. You can get a metallic taste in your mouth. You can get indigestion, a bit like acid reflux, and you can get muscle pains. But the really dangerous ones are either non-existent or, or very rare.
0: So I mean to answer Brian's question could you take it if you're not diabetic like do you see a future where that's being prescribed for other things as well
1: yeah some people are recommending it right now and suggesting that that it should be trialed as a dementia prevention or cancer prevention some people there are randomized trials going on using metformin in cancer treatment so if you've got cancer they add it to your chemotherapy but this is not something to you know jump at randomly you can 't get it anyway without getting a prescription from your doctor you 've got to talk it over with your g p about that the the pros and cons because like any drug, and also there are risks of interactions as well. Just talk it over with your g p before you you jump in i mean the thing, The truth is keeping your weight down, sorry to be boring, mm-hmm. exercise particularly high intensity interval training even a bit of fasting where you miss breakfast so you, that's sort of 168 kind of diet where you don't eat until midday those sorts of things that metabolic stress is probably similar to the effect of metformin with fewer side effects, apart from hunger.
0: <laughs> well, we've got Lance asking about pertussis vaccination. So many new grandparents are asked to have boosters so that they can meet their newborn and infant relatives. And Lance is wondering whether it's possible, whether the vaccination stops you from having it in your system, basically being a, um, an asymptomatic spreader.
1: Yes, so this is called cocooning, where anybody coming in close contact with a baby in the first three months or so of life before they get their immunizations and build up immunity, because it's a very nasty, potentially fatal disease in newborn babies. Um, so there, there's, there's some evidence that cocooning works, and it's probably better being safe than sorry. And, you know, and, and as an adult, getting a booster means you're not going to get whooping cough, and that's pretty unpleasant too. There's no question... So it almost sounds like the coronavirus vaccine type story. So there's no question that whooping uh, cough pertussis immunization prevents pertussis disease. So the symptoms, certainly the severe end of pertussis disease. What happened a few years ago is that there, they actually went to what's called an acellular pertussis vaccine, which meant that there were fewer. There weren't cells of the pertussis organism in the vaccine. And it, create, it had fewer side effects. Probably was also less so-called immunogenic. So it was probably just slightly less effective as a vaccine. So there is some evidence that you reduce colonization with the pertussis when you um, when you when you're immunized, but it's not strong. And there was a study in baboons which suggested that it didn't prevent colonization. So the answer is. Um, there may be some effect of cocooning, and best to do it than not. You're not going to do yourself any harm. Um, but whether it actually prevents transmission of pertussis is still a bit of an open question.
0: Mm. And one more question from Lynn, who has stopped smoking cigarettes just over a year ago, but during the end she started to use a nicotine spray to get her through tough moments, as many people do, but much like smoking for tough moments, her brain has started to come up with excuses to use the spray, and they've become more frequent, and two sprays and five sprays, and she's wondering what the net gain is from not smoking but still feeling quite reliant on nicotine.
1: Yeah, I and mean, that's the problem with the spray is that you're taking a hit of the nicotine and it's the nicotine that keeps you addicted. Well, the net effect is that you are you're missing out on all the carcinogens and the nasty stuff of smoking. But probably it'd be a good idea to actually reduce your use of nicotine. You can go to the quit line and ask. You can go to your GP and ask about that. Things like the patches which you've probably tried already and you don't like because you don't get the hit from them, but the patches can replace. I mean, essentially what you're talking about here is nicotine replacement. So moving to the patches or moving to one of the drugs that um, reduce craving in smoking, um, it might be a good idea too, And that you can talk to the quit line, and you can also talk to your GP about that. Um, and you can do combination um, therapies of patches and gum, gum, not everybody likes gum, it can be quite bitter, but you can actually you know, play around with it under supervision. So those are, you know, and there are people who can give you counselling with, with getting off this. It's not an unusual problem. Um, so if you want to actually reduce that, probably a good idea. Um, there are ways of doing it.
0: Are there long-term side effects from nicotine use apart from the health effects of smoking?
1: Um, there are said to be, but I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. So the addiction is the is the main one, and um, and with children and young people, one of the problems with vaping nicotine is that you do become addicted, and vaping nicotine is a gateway drug for real cigarettes. So you don't want kids starting to inhale nicotine in any shape or form because that does move them on to cigarettes. And I suppose the risk is um, with Lynn is that she goes back to cigarettes. Um, and that would not be a good thing.
0: Well, that's all I've got in the mailbag for you today, Norman. So, listeners, if you want to ask us a question, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au.
1: And we'll see you next time.
0: See you then.